Romans chapter number 8. If you join me there, Romans chapter number 8. Brother Ryan's going to make his way down the middle aisle. Getting a little feedback, guys. If I could have it down just a little bit, thank you much. Brother Ryan's come down the middle aisle. If you need an outline, we sure would love for you to follow along with us in the outline. Romans chapter number 8. As he make his way, makes his way to the back, you can get his attention. Be glad to get you an outline. Love for you to follow along. And a great passage dealing with the Holy Spirit. I can't help as we have talked about this aspect and this truth, these principles, this doctrine. And uh, I am I'm so thankful that uh, uh, the Pentecostals and everybody else, they, they don't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. And their misinterpretation of what the Holy Spirit is and the indwelling and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit and all those things, I, I'm grateful you and I can study these passages and know exactly what the Holy Spirit does and why He was given to us and how He manifests Himself in our lives. And crucial doctrine, so very important when we are dealing with folks to know what the Holy Spirit is and who He is and what He does in our lives. And that's really what we have before us. Uh, we're really, Paul has helped us to contemplate, meditate on all that the Holy Spirit does. He's given us already a plethora of advantages or benefits or a growing list of the benefits, if we could say, of the Holy Spirit, His presence in our lives. You remember, we've already looked at a few things. Going back to verse number 14, we saw that the Spirit introduces us to family life, adopted into the family. Uh, secondly, we looked in verses 17 through 25, the idea that he confirms our future glory. Uh, He he is that down payment, that earnest. We'll talk a little bit more about that this evening and all the, the implications of that fact. And then he talked about as we Last time we were together, uh, uh, the aspect of the fact that uh, he helps us with our present infirmities. Verse number 26 of Romans chapter 8, uh, you look at it again. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. We came to understand that's a spiritual weakness and uh, that he is there to, to help us with those things, to pray for us, even as Christ is. And we went down through verse 27. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we finished up two weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago with uh, that last ta- takeaway. It was this, speaking of the triune God and God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, they all have in common the ultimate goal of God's will. We saw that at the end of verse 27, and that's the springboard for now this passage in front of us as we look at it. And it includes changing those three groanings into glory, and that's what we have here. Now remember, the Holy Spirit as our earnest or down payment is literally the forward payment of what is guaranteed. Now think about it in context of you and I. If we're going to buy a house, we would be expected to put down a down payment. Or we're going to put in an offer, we put in earnest money. The idea is this, that we're going to follow through on that offer or the down payment. We are going to follow through on paying the full price, the full cost of that house or that loan, paying it off or whatever the case may be. In that sense, don't miss it, we are the guarantor for that, the rest of the loan for the the remainder of the fee or the cost uh, of that transaction. Not to belittle or reduce its enormity, but in the transaction of salvation, God is serving as the guarantor. He is the one who is guaranteeing. Listen, here is the down payment. Here, here is the earnest of what I am guaranteeing that I'm going to give you. That's literally what God in heaven is doing in salvation as he endues uh, us with the Holy Spirit. So we have the down payment, the earnest, if we could put it that way. Literally, he's promising that he's going to follow through with everything that he's promised. Uh, what happens when you and I want to buy a house? 
Well, we apply for a loan, right? And in that process, they want to check if you and I can be trusted to follow through, to pay. They'll, they'll check our credit score. They'll, they'll want to know about your income. In other words, your salary, your wage. They want to make sure that you have enough uh, resources in your income to take care of what you're doing. They also want a down payment, right? Sometimes a 15 to 20%. Now, if you can't pay the, the, uh, the down payment of 15 to 20%, often they'll make you pay a PMI, right? Private mortgage insurance insurance to make sure to ensure that you'll cover it and everything else because that's a huge loan on their part and they want, don't want to give you more than they think you're possible of paying. Really, it's just another way for them to get more money. Amen? And uh, so that's really what it is. But nonetheless, what they're trying to do is this. You, they're saying that you are more than a risk than a normal person or if you could pay the down payment of 15, 20%. So we're going to uh, help to uh, get a little guarantee that you're going to follow through. Now think about it. When you and I go for the loan and we're going to do a down payment, we're going to give an earnest money in that sense, that's exactly what they're trying to do is ensure that you and I are going to follow through. Well, in that context, in our understanding and comprehension of how that works, the rest of Romans chapter 8 is literally Paul laying out the case and presenting to us uh, the grounds and the explanation, now get it, of our eternal security. That you are secure in Christ and God is going to follow through on what he has promised. And, and literally, as we'll see before us, when we consider God, he, he meets and exceeds all of the boxes that need to be checked. Literally, if we think of it in, in context of that illustration, his history when it comes to promises is what? It's flawless. He keeps it. There's not a promise that fails of God. He, he is flawless. When it comes to his resources, he's limitless. Uh, he, he has all the resources to fulfill and to keep every promise that he's given you and I in his salvation and in everything else. And the fact is this, you want to talk about a good down payment. If you walked into a loan place and they said, okay, you, you want to get this loan, a, a bank or whatever the case may be, a loaning agency, and they, they, yeah, they said, okay, you want a loan for this much, and how much are you able to put down? And let's say you were trying to get a loan for 150000 What if you walked in and you say, listen, I, I, want, to, I want to get a loan for 150000 And they say, okay, how much can you put down? And you in turn say, I want to put down 140000 what would be their response? Hey, man, we'll take you. <laughs> we'll do that. Well, well, hey, well, you, boy, you're already putting out. Okay, we can do it. I mean, they would be excited. Now, think about it. What kind of down payment in earnest did you and I get? We got the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you that's a whole, much better than a, a whole bunch better than $140,000? The down payment in earnest we have received, man, it is the greatest, the best down payment that you and I could ever imagine that we could receive on our coming inheritance, the promise of salvation, the promise of glory that Paul has already described. Now think about it. In our carnal side, if God gave you and I the opportunity to choose the down payment of glory, what would some of us choose? I'd like my mansion now. <laughs> I'd like this now and I'd like this. I'm so thankful that our God in heaven is much wiser than you and I and he gave us the Holy Spirit. That helps us each and every day. Man, what a tremendous down payment, uh, an earnest, if we could describe it as such here. And then that flows into verse 28 
And uh, as it starts to lay out these truths before us, and, and we're going to break it down, you'll see here. In fact, let's go ahead and look at the outline. We'll get to verse 28 in just a moment. But look at the outline here. From verse 28 on, there's really two parts that we're going to break it down into. I'm going to give you the two bold points. We won't get through it tonight. In fact, we won't make it much farther in verse 28. And uh, I almost put in Facebook today, I said, you know, I, I said uh, something in advertisement to come to church tonight. If you think you know all you, there is to know about verse 28, come to church tonight and find out if you know, okay? Because we're going to get down and in the depths of verse 28 and just see some great truth from it. But notice the breakdown, verse 27b, where it speaks about the Holy Spirit who intercedes in conjunction with the will of God. So now we're going to see the will of God played out uh, for us. And notice it uh, there, the first part is this, the Spirit works according to God's forever plan. We'll see this in verse 27, verse 30. The Holy Spirit is working according to a perfect plan, God's forever plan, His eternal plan and with eternity in view and then the verses 31 through 39 I'm excited about getting to it'll be a few weeks but notice that the spirit promises that we will never fall from the ranks of the saved and we'll get into specifically eternal security when it comes to salvation and being a part of the family of God but first when we consider uh, that the Holy Spirit in Christ as was stated in verse 27 and in verse 34 looking ahead that they intercede for us according to the will of God then we safely assume that they're all on the same page. We saw a little bit of that a couple of weeks ago. But the fact is they're following the same plan. So what is the plan? What's the overall plan and what's the specific plan that God has? Well, Paul expounds upon that and explains for us in these verses. Verse 28 is the beginning. We would say very much that this is an overview of the plan. Notice it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose familiar verse, but let's break it down little by little, if you will, with me, okay? Letter A, I want you to see this, will you? The assured outcome of God's plan, it is for the call, to them that are the called, okay? And so here's the outcome. We'll see it laid out for us, okay? First of all, let's look at three words here. The very beginning of the verse, you see it there, number one, and it simply starts out this, and we know, and we know. Notice it, the beginning of verse 28, if you will. And we know. Um, it's an important statement, not just for what it says, but note it. Okay, don't miss it tonight. All right? It's not just about what it says. It, it's about what it doesn't say. Okay? Not just about what it says. It's about what it doesn't say. Get it? Too many people today are content to do what? Notice it. They're content with saying this. Listen carefully. Make sure this is not you. They rest much in their life upon this kind of statement. I feel, I think, and I believe. Okay? Now, that, those are good statements in some case, all right? In some ways, but the reality is this. They've got to be based upon the Scripture, okay? And uh, thanks, Mike. All right. Now listen, okay? Uh, stick with me here, all right? Uh, those statements, notice what Paul says. He says, we know. Completely different than the idea that I think, I feel, or I believe. Very, very important we realize that modernly speaking, there's a whole lot of people who are resting a lot on feelings, on what they think, or what they believe based upon a wrong foundation. 
See, Paul is saying that we know this. In fact, it's, a, it's an assured thing. And uh, he doesn't start this verse. And that's what I like. He doesn't say, well, I think, hey, this is my assumption. This is my belief. This is what I think. No, he doesn't do it. Well, I believe this. No, Paul doesn't. He says, we know. And this kind of know is the idea of we know it. It is settled. God has spoken. It is clear. It's obvious in scriptures and also from personal experience. We can know this. And if you don't know it, right now it is something that is easy to know that's literally what the uh, the original greek speaks of it's an authoritative uh, authoritative excuse me uh, assertion from god that you and i can take the blank it's something we can know you you can you you can feel all you want you can think all you want you can believe all you want but none of that compares with knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt and that's what this is speaking of it's what we get from God. It's something that we can hang our hat on, we can rest in, we can trust in. And yet the fact is, it's so very sad that so many people would rather go with their feelings. Have you ever talked to somebody and you're like, wait, but the Bible says this. Yeah, but I just think. See, I was talking and I, I should have said something. The other uh, Sunday, uh, we had my cousin who was here and uh, on, my, on my mom's side and so forth. Uh, his name was Brett and Corey and their family. And uh, they had six kids. We had six kids made for a fun house Sunday night. Anyway, and they came for a visit. And I love their story. The Lord has really worked in their hearts and lives in the last five, ten years and so forth. And they were going to what we would call a seeker-sensitive church and very feel-good, all about the love of God and yada, 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 and those kind of things. And, and they were sitting in a Bible study there and they they made the comment they're just kind of listening to people talk and all it was was everybody sharing their opinion everybody just saying well i think this and i feel this and i i think this and can i tell you that you can think what you want you can feel what you want but the bottom line is what the bible says See, and that's where we get into problems because sometimes in our churches and, uh, yay, more liberal churches, the fact is we can have a Bible study and we're going to home studies and we're doing all this and we're getting together and, and it becomes a social gathering where everybody shares their opinion and their thoughts. My friend, that is very dangerous. Unless you take it all and run it through the filter of God's word and, and finish with, thus saith the Lord. That is where we are headed today. The internet has become one of the great instruments for just throwing out there what you think and you believe. I've said it before, and this is so very true because we practice it sometimes in our own lives. If you say something long enough, you'll believe it. Okay, just ask the, just ask the liberal media. Okay? If we say it long enough, we'll believe it. There's things that you and I have, have just convinced ourselves is that this is the best this, this is the best this. And, and reality is, and you can compare things and so forth, and it may not be, but we've convinced ourselves of that and some things that don't really matter. But can I tell you, there are people who can, have said things and believe things for so long based upon feelings and their own thinking and their own beliefs that have no scriptural merit, and yet they hold them equal with the Scripture. We've got to be very careful. And this is one of these areas that Paul says, I, we know this to be true. We know it's a fact. Um, uh, the, the, we could put it this way. Um, many people trust in their own fallible thinking. They go with their own up and down feelings or their own unrooted beliefs. And they think they can use those things. They think they can follow that path in life to obtain what this verse promises. All things work together for good 
to them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. There's many a person that thinks, okay, I, I just feel if I do this, God's going to bless me, and I, I, everything's going to go great, and everything will be well, and all work. No, okay, you can feel that, but those feelings better be rested and founded and rooted in God's Word. Okay, you can think that, but it's got to be rooted here. And Paul literally says that, and, and here's a promise that, that is for anyone if they will qualify themselves for it. Yet so many, even believers, they turn to feelings, they turn to their own thoughts or their own beliefs, uh, looking to gain this good in life, this life in the next. There's a comfort and guaranteed hope that it's only experienced when we take God at his word. See, there's only a comfort and a guaranteed hope that is only experienced when we take God at his word. And literally, we must join Paul and say, for we know. We know. We know that all things work together for good. And that's just saying it's a matter of fact because God said it and it's true. I've seen it in my life. I see it throughout the pages of Scripture. We'll see that. The next statement is very obvious, right? And we know that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Now, let me give you a statement here and we'll think upon it for a moment. Okay? The extent of the believer's good is that as limitless as the absolute certainty of his eternal security. Okay, take it all in. Okay? So let's think about it, consider. The extent of the believer's good is as limitless as the absolute certainty of his eternal security. So how, how do we kind of break that down, put it in our terms, simplistic terms that I can understand? Okay? Well, we're saying this. Do you believe tonight that you have absolute security in your salvation? Well, certainly, yes. I, I believe that, according to Scriptures, that, that God holds me in His hand and no man can pluck Him out. So, uh, in salvation, we are secure as secure could be. Well, if that is the case, then can I tell you, here's a good thing. Just as surely as God has promised that you are secure, God has promised that all things will work together for your good. So as much as this is true and the absolute certainty that God has you in his hand, there is an absolute certainty and a limitlessness to the fact that this is true. All the things in your life, God can work together for your good. See, we're connecting two truths, understanding that God has promised this. And if we take God at his promise here, then we can certainly take God at his promise here. And this is just as powerful as this is. Though sometimes in practicality, oh, we can say, oh, I know I'm saved, but boy, I, I just don't know how God's going to work all this together for my good. Yeah, you see what we've done in that? We've taken this promise, oh yeah, absolute, certainly, I'm saved. But then we lowered our faith in God's promise over here. Hey, my friend, if the God in heaven your God can hold you and no man can pluck you out. Can I tell you? He can take any circumstance in your life and work it together for your good. See, that's where Paul's tying this together. He's helping us grasp. Uh, I, I, I can't disconnect the two. I, it's the same God and the same promise and the same power holding up. That God is at work in the world on the behalf of his people, his children, to bring about great good in our lives. All the good that happens in our life, uh, our lives comes about because he does it. And what does he say? Don't, let's not skip over it because of the familiarity. He says all things. And friend, tonight, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? All things. It is utterly comprehensive. It contains no exceptions and no qualifications. 
There simply are no restrictions. Hey, there's no fine print at the bottom that renders it limited in its scope or its power or its ability to reach. It's really the idea culminating in verse 39. And if you look ahead, verse 39, we'll get to it eventually, but it says this, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So nothing can separate us, that eternal security. The fact is nothing can separate us from this good. All things. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Pastor Henry, this happened in my life last week, and there's no way God can use that for good. My friend, God can use all things for your good. So we, we can't character or, or try to compartmentalize and try to decide, okay, God can use that, but he can't use this. God, no, no, if nothing can separate you from the love of God, Paul's saying nothing can separate you from him working good in your life. And I'll tell you, my friend, that ought to be exciting to us. That as assuredly as our salvation is secure, our eternal home is secure, it is just as assured that God's going to use everything in your life and my life for our good. Man, what a great God we serve. What a promise. Paul explains and helps us to comprehend that his plan is at work in our lives, driving us toward the desired outcome of our good. Um, Very much, uh, he is the grand master weaver, taking each of the uh, experience of our life, even the worst experiences, and turning them into blessings for his beloved children. We put it this way in the statement. You'll see it here. Even the things that are temporarily harmful uh, or even evil, okay? Evil things, bad things happen to God's children or that seem to work against, and I think I left out the word us in your outline. That was my fault, so you can write that in there. But that seem to work against us will ultimately be turned for our long-term benefit and good. And here is where mentally in the Christian walk, we sometimes trip up. How can God take this evil thing, this harmful thing, even this thing that seems to work against me in the present temporary sense, how's God going to work that out? Well, I sure am thankful I'm not in charge of doing that, but God is. He's going to do it. He's going to work it together. Um, it, it's interesting here. Uh, uh, Cernageo, that's the Greek word translated in our uh, King James New Testament here, uh, translated as work together. Okay? You may guess it immediately, and we'll go to the next slide on your outline there. Cernageo, excuse me, Cernageo uh, is the Greek word from which we derive the English word synergism. Okay, um, or synergy is another form of it. Here's a neat definition of both the Greek word and even uh, the derivative of our English word. It literally means this. Don't miss it tonight. The interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents, which would be events and situations and happenings in our life, notice it, to co- produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. Okay, so uh, the Greek word literally to work together takes these parts and says when we bring them together, the effect is greater than if you took the sum of their individual parts and tried to add them. Literally, it's like this. If you took this two over here and this two over here and you combined them, they equal six. Okay, that's not real math, by the way. Okay, so, but the idea is this. When they're combined, it's even greater than what their individual sum would be. And literally, they can do so much more. And I, man, my friend, can I tell you, don't miss that. 
That, that is a great understanding of this verse. You can take this bad situation in life, this good situation, this bad situation, this trial, this persecution, this suffering, this righteousness. God works it all together in much greater than the sum of the individual. God puts it in your life, and my friend, it works together for your good. Man, what a concept we get in this simple doctrine. Let me give you a basic illustration if we can, okay? Most of you would know that in, in a very simplistic understanding that table salt is made out of sodium and chlorine. Well, sodium in its purest form is a metal. In fact, it's a very reactive metal. It's very dangerous, can even be poisonous. Well, chlorine as a gas in and of itself, it, it's very dangerous. Don't go sniffing it, Okay. It's not a good thing, you know. If you have a pool, or ever been working around a pool, and you're trying to put chlorine in, woo, you don't want the wind to hit the wrong direction. It'll blow in your face, and that's, that's terrible. Okay, In and of themselves, these two things are poisonous and bad. But my friend, you put them together in a, in a compound called sodium chloride, what do you get? Table salt. A substance that for us Southerners makes everything taste better. You add it to things, man, it tastes better. Yeah, you just, now that's crazy. Two terrible, poisonous things, but they come together. And if we want to get into the scientific thing, uh, uh, sodium has an ele- extra electron out here in its outer thing, not close to the nucleus, and so um, chloride comes along. Gra- anyway, okay, so th- there's a whole science behind how it works. It's pretty amazing. Can I tell you? It certainly points to a creator, doesn't it? And wise designer. But nonetheless, how it comes together, and what do we get? A harmless, except for your heart, uh, <laughs> a table saw, right? I mean, something that, that is beneficial. At the very least, what salt preserved things in days of old. Man, that's pretty amazing how those things come together, isn't it? And here's what's even more amazing. Do you realize that every bad thing in your life, mixed with all the good things in your life, God in heaven has taken together and has worked it for your good? And if you want to call the good things sodium and you want to call the bad things chloride or chlorine, God has worked them so wonderfully together. In some of us, you would have never guessed some of the bad things that have happened. But boy, our God has worked them out for our good. Man, we serve a great God. And the Holy Spirit has worked behind all this and in this all of the time. Hey, don't, don't misunderstand it either. God is not saying in this verse through Paul that all the events and the circumstances and situations in our life themselves will turn out good. Sometimes we as Christians, we get this wrong thing. Well, I know this situation right here has to turn around. Can I tell you, I've lived long enough, almost all of you have lived long enough to realize not every situation turns around in and of itself. There are times when bad things happen and it doesn't change. But God never promised that. That in and of itself, this situation is going to turn. No, no, no. God promised to take that situation and bring it to this situation in your life and this situation, and he's working it all together for your good. That's his promise. And it isn't that the situations, and sometimes we read the, uh, this, uh, ver- uh, the, this verse and we think, well, all things work together. Well, it's passive. The things aren't working together. Your God is working it all together. Like someone, like a chemist mixing sodium and chlorine or, or some other thing to make a compound. The reality is God in heaven is working these all together. Um, uh, he has his hand in everything, and I'm thankful he does. 
He's bringing them all together to produce good in our lives, both now in this present life, but also in eternal life to come. There's amazing clarity and evidence of this principle scattered throughout the Scriptures and even in our own lives. Think with me. Let's just take one example. How would you describe the wanderings of the Jews in the wilderness? When they left Egypt, and even before they got to the edge of the promised land, rejected God's um, uh, call to enter by faith, their failure in faith, how would you describe not only that, but the 40 years afterwards? Would you say that it was an easy time in their lives, or would you say it's a hard one? Well, certainly it's a hard one, right? I mean, the hardships were plenteous, and at times they didn't think they had food. They didn't think they had water. The enemies were numerous, attacking them at different times. You, all you have to do is read the early part of the, the Old Testament. You'll find out, man, they were hounded and not allowed to pass. And I mean, it was a difficult time, not an easy time. Uh, many obstacles, many difficulties, enemies galore for the Israelites. From a temporal viewpoint and temporally considered, it was a hard and harsh journey. How would you classify it? Well, if you probably ask the Israelites, they say, this was just one bad day after another. You know, how has your week gone? It's been seven bad days. How's your month gone? 31 bad days. <laughs> how's your year gone? 300, okay, we'll stop. But you get the idea. That's literally what their attitude would have been. Hey, man, this is, these are difficult days. But you know what's amazing what God described it as? God looking on those days of wondering, those hardships and harsh times. Look with me. Hold your spot, obviously. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Might we see that uh, in this passage, God's perspective, or what I might say is a Romans 8 perspective in Deuteronomy chapter 8. A Romans 8 perspective in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll look in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll pick up in verse 11. God is speaking through Moses to Israel, and now they're about to get into the promised land. They are about to inherit the new generation is about to inherit what their parents did not and could not through failure of faith and in that God is speaking through Moses and he says some things gives some warning but he also gives some retrospective perspective okay a, a retrospect perspective on uh, the past wanderings look at verse 11 beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day let or excuse me lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness notice it how does he describe it it was a terrible wilderness okay God is not up in heaven looking at what you're going through in your life and just saying okay you know what uh, just uh, stop being such a whiner your life is can I tell you God has sympathy for what you and I go through he knows when he is touched by our infirmities. He knows that days are difficult at home. Days are difficult at the job. Days are difficult with family members and friends. And Days are difficult. He didn't color code it here. It's a terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought. Sounds like a good vacation place, doesn't it? 
where there was no water. Who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint? I always think that's funny. Flint, Michigan, water. Okay, anyway, the rock of Flint. Some of you will catch that later. Okay, verse 16. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not. Now notice this, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee, what's the next word? Good in thy latter end. Isn't it amazing? A Romans 8 perspective in Deuteronomy 8 of God looking back and saying, listen, I did all this. Here's why I did it. You know why? For your good. I worked all that. I used it. Why were the Israelites there? And I think this is great encouragement. The Israelites were there for 40 years because of their sin, their wrong choices. You realize that God even took their wrong choice to help Israel? So what does the Bible verse say? All things work together for our good. He even takes our failures. He, he even takes, at times, the sin that we commit, and, and obviously necessary that we repent of it, but God's going to use it. And man, he's going to orchestrate it in such a way that he's going to work even that for our good. It takes some time sometimes in the latter end. For them, it was generational. The next generation was going to reap that good. Uh, but nonetheless, it was certainly present. You see, even though the 40 years was subsequently a negative result in judgment for their failure of faith, God even took that and he put it together. He brought about good for them in the end. Temporal difficulties are often one of God's most important ingredients for bringing about good in our lives. So those troubles, those difficulties, God's going to do something good with them in your life and mine. He will. He, that's his promise. All things will work together. Another time in Israel's life, or Israel's history, excuse me, the lives of the Israelites, you would not look on being carried away to the Chaldeans and Persia as a, a good thing. That, that's not a good thing to Israel when they were conquered, carried away in captivity. But here's what's amazing. Notice what Christ says in Jeremiah, or excuse me, God says in Jeremiah, and forgive me, I put chapter 2, that's not correct, it's 24, I left off the 4. Jeremiah 24, verses 5 and 6. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, as I will I acknowledge them that are carried Carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. Now, wait a second. Now, wait a minute, God. Wait, 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 wait. Jehovah, you said you sent them into captivity because of their sin. Yes. But, but you just said that it was for their good. Yes. Man, what a great God we serve. Yeah, they deserve it. They, they were in captivity because of their sin. This was judgment. But God also said, this is going to work out for good. I'm going to work it together. Verse 6, notice what he says. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I didn't put it in here, but verse 7 goes on to say what that good is. You know what it says? That they will have a whole heart that their heart would be set upon God when he brings them back. It was for their good. God was using it and was going to use it for their good. You see, from Job to Joseph to Daniel to Peter to Paul, we see that suffering, temptations, 
Even persecutions and even sometimes our sin are used of God to bring about good both in our lives now and for eternity. It appears that back here in Romans chapter 8, that is really what Paul is referring to. When he says in verse 26, he says our infirmities, we've already established a couple of weeks ago, he's speaking of spiritual weaknesses. And so he's taking that and he's saying, okay, we're going to take those. And even though certainly punishment and judgment comes for things and you face temptations and trials and so forth, I'm going to use those things and work them together. His emphasis in verse 28 when he says, hey, we know that all things work together for good. His emphasis is on the negative aspect of our life as opposed to the righteous things which are nonetheless included. It's all included, but his focus and emphasis seems to be on that. Probably the greatest example, certainly, of all time is God taking the cruelty and the wicked and evil cross and Jesus Christ being crucified on it, and he takes such a wicked, evil, horrible thing, and what does he turn it into? The greatest display of love, the means of redemption, the means by which an entire fallen race can experience salvation. Might we put it this way? It is eternal salvation derived from the greatest act of evil and suffering. So if God in heaven can take what was the greatest act of evil and suffering, the devil's plan to put Jesus Christ to death and crucify him, and God can take that, and does he turn it into something good for you and me? Oh, yeah, our redemption, our salvation. Boy, if God can do that, don't you think he can take something bad in our lives, a bad situation, a bad experience, and he can work it together for our good? Oh, my friend, I'll trust the God of heaven that did what he did on Calvary to do what he says he'll do in my life. I'll put my faith in him, the reality of what he said. Now notice, will you, in the remainder of the verse, at least the first part of it, the one to whom this promise is given. The statement is simple. We know it. To them that love God, to them who are the called. To them that love God, to them that are the called. Now, this description of the saved or true believers used by Paul uh, here is one that he often repeats. If you were to trace it and kind of do a word study or a phraseology study, you would find that Paul often refers to this as those who love God, you that love God, and so forth. It is another term or a title description of believers. In fact, it's not just Paul that uses it. James uses it and even uh, other New Testament authors and writers. Literally, we would describe that statement to them that love God as probably the greatest characterization that can be given to a believer. See, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a believer. But I love it when somebody says, oh, that means you love God. Isn't that a good characterization? See, that's what Paul is reminding us. And much where our mission statement or our thing is to know God, love God, and live for God. Man, we want to love God. I want to be known for loving God, putting him first, and, and making him number one, making him Lord of my life. I want, to be, I want to be known for loving God. That's what Paul does. In fact, a few illustrations. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, he talks about that we don't know what God has prepared for believers. What does he say? To them that love him. Later on in the same book, in chapter 8, he says those that love God are known by God, referencing salvation. Uh, James says those who love God are promised his eternal crown of life, literally salvation. So it flows throughout the New Testament. So when we read this here, Paul is just using it as a description of a believer, a child of God. The next statement here before us in this verse is just another way of putting it. 
And the phrase, to them that love God, could be considered to be written from man's perspective, while the phrase, to them who are the called, could be considered from heaven's perspective. God's view looking down from heaven. We'll get into the calling and everything else. It is not Calvinism and God choosing some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. No, that's not what this passage speaks of. We'll explain that in subsequent Wednesday nights and see what Paul says here. But the fact is this, to put it concisely, this promise has but one qualification. Okay, it is a limitless promise to those to whom it is given. But here's the only qualification on the promise. It is given to true believers, children of God, those who love God, those who have been redeemed and are being sanctified according to the wondrous plan and purpose of God in heaven, the Holy Spirit at work. And we'll see that plan and purpose unfolding in these next few verses. So that is the only question. So in other words, if you come across an unbeliever and like, you know, I'm just, I'm just trusting that all things work together for good. Hey, my friend, if they are not saved, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is not for them. Okay, so let's understand that is the only qualification just as assuredly as you can't tell a believer, oh yeah, you're going to heaven if they've never trusted in Jesus Christ. There's no eternal security in unbelief. There's only eternal security in belief. And so there's only a promise that all things will work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose for those who believe. If you're a Christian here tonight, you can take it to the bank. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is written for you, and it is a powerful verse in what it says and what it establishes. But my friend, in order for someone to make that available for themselves, they must trust in Jesus Christ. They must be one who loves Him who are the called. Now here's what I like. We'll jump ahead a few verses and we're done. Verse 31 tells us, answers this question. Who in the world, uh, who's going to stop that from happening in my life? Who's going to prevent that, all things working together for good? Look at verse 31. What shall we say to the then, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now listen. Put it in whatever context you want. You have an employer that hates your guts, that, that, that will not promote you, that just treats you horribly, despises you, and you say, man, I can, I'm never going to be able to get up the ranks. Can I tell you, if God is for you, who can be against you? God will work everything out for your good. Well, Pastor Henry, there's just, just one person in my family. It could even be a church, and they just despise me. They don't like me. And every time I, they just treat me wrong, and I, I just don't see how things are going to. Hey, I don't see it either, but God in heaven does. Because he's the one that works all things together for our good. If God be for us, my friend, who can be against us? A situation, a person, it does not matter, my friend. Ain't nobody going to stop God's plan from taking place in the life of a Christian. We serve a powerful God. No thing, no person will stop God's plan for good in your life. Nothing can steal the victory. Nothing can take away the good that God has in store for you. So don't lose sight of a believer. Christian, God is going to turn it and put anything in the word it. That pronoun stands for whatever it is in your life. God is going to turn it for good. Boy, we serve a great God, don't we? 
And Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is so full of great truth. So let's take it to the bank this week. God's going to use it. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I can trust my God just as surely as he holds my soul in his hand. I can trust he's going to use this to work out for good for me.